Heavenly Father, I thank you for all the blessings we have in here, the chance to meet again, for my safe return and for everyone else's rejoining as well. Father, we uh, look forward to what you have in the Word tonight. We look forward to not just the opportunity to learn the history of what you did, but in everything that you can tell us through your Word, Father, there is something for us as well, some instruction or exhortation or reproof or correction. We look forward, Father, to knowing what it is in this Word that you intended not only for the world and for history's sake, but for us personally. And the Spirit, Father, is more than capable of bringing us that knowledge. May he work through my words. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, as I was saying, Exodus has six parts. We've been in part one. Part one was the call of Moses, or that history of how we got to a point of Moses in ministry. We'll finish that tonight at the end of chapter four. And then chapter five will begin the second part. And the second part was the demonstration of God's sovereignty through judgment to Pharaoh. That'll take us all the way through chapter 11. Just a little programming announcement. When we get into chapter 14, I believe it is, the the parting of the Red Sea, there'll be a night where we'll show a video that has some really fascinating archaeological insight demonstrating the true location of the actual sea crossing. Like most things in tradition, it's not what people think it is. And in concert with that, when we get to the time at Mount Horeb, which follows immediately, as you know, we'll take another night somewhere soon after that and look at another video that looks at the true location of Mount Sinai, which is in Saudi Arabia, Midian, not in the peninsula of Egypt called the Sinai Peninsula. And we'll show you not only out of that movie, but also out of scripture, how the current day popular location cannot be the location that the Bible's talking about. It does not match to the biblical description. So we'll see all of that when we get there. But I'm letting you know there'll be a couple nights in here where we take that time. Either it'll be a partial teaching and part video or something of that sort. I don't know if or how I'll be able to incorporate those videos into what's online. I'm saying that because I don't want you to miss it and you'll have to probably be here to see it. So back to the text. Chapter 4, verse 18 is where we pick up again tonight. We're in Midian still. Moses has received God's call, or you might say his commission, to return to Egypt and lead Israel free from bondage. When Moses heard those instructions last week, we remember he asked questions, he raised objections, God answered the questions, God rebutted the objections, and then he gave Moses assurances that he could carry out this plan. So all that remains for Moses at this point is to obey the word of the Lord and do as God has commanded. So, in verse 18, Moses begins making arrangements to leave Midian. Let's pick up there. Verse 18, Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord appeared to Moses at Mount Horeb. And the first thing Moses does in response to the Lord's direction is to go back home. So he was at Mount Horeb, which is a distance from where he lived at Jethro's. From there, he goes back to Jethro's home. He asks Jethro, his father-in-law, for permission to leave and to take his family and obey God's call. Now, his request here of Jethro was in keeping with culture because he served 
in Jethro's home. Jethro was the patriarch of the family, so that meant everyone else was literally a servant of the patriarch in the way patriarchal societies work. So it was necessary for Moses to ask his permission, both out of respect and out of custom. So if he expects to go, he has to expect Jethro to let him go. And Jethro, who we've already heard is called a priest, priest of God, he naturally grants Moses this permission. I say naturally because if God's called Moses to leave, then we can naturally expect God to pave the path to make that possible, would he not? So God was no doubt working in the heart of Jethro, even before Moses opened his mouth, so that it would ensure that Jethro's heart was inclined to agree with the request. You can make a parallel to the story of Jacob in which Jacob had similar commands to go and do and come back and so on. But at each turn, he seemed to feel the need to scheme on top of God's plan to ensure that God's plan could get done. And the scriptures are pretty clear in commenting on the fallacy of Jacob's approach. Here we see Moses doing everything the right way, assuming God will make the plan work as he does. It's interesting here, as you end the chapter, chapter 4, verse 19, Moses is still in Midian still preparing to leave, and the Lord appears a second time. Now, in this case, we don't know what form the Lord took. We know in the earlier time it was in a form of a burning bush. Here we don't know. But the message is clear enough. Go back to Pharaoh and do as I've instructed. The Lord's already given these instructions to Moses. So here he appears yet again with similar instructions. Perhaps Moses was wavering in his determination to obey the Lord. Perhaps Moses was entertaining second thoughts. Maybe, maybe not. But if so, then I would look upon this moment as something encouraging because it suggests God's persistence, his patience in compensating for our weaknesses when responding to God's call. If God has called us to accomplish something in his name, then we can trust he's going to equip us. We've already said that he who God calls, he will equip the entire chapter up to this point has been a demonstration of God ensuring Moses would be properly equipped and assuring him that he would be properly equipped. But equipping means not only the talents and the gifts for the work. It also means sufficient focus, conviction, and the urgency to stick with the mission. And if Moses was perhaps reconsidering his departure, God's second appearance would seem to ensure that Moses has put all those doubts aside and would stay focused on the task. I think it's cutting God short to suggest he can line up all the pins and give us the bowling ball, but not be able to make sure that our efforts succeed in the end. I mean, there is no limit to God's authority and capability to ensure success. And I think we all benefit from this kind of prodding when we're in the midst of a hard mission God may have given us. God's equipping will always be sufficient to meet the demands of our mission. Paul says it this way in one verse, 2 Corinthians 9:10. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Our test is whether we will accept the opportunity to join in the work. So Moses accepts God's call to join in this work. So he takes his family, including now two sons, and he mounts them on a donkey, takes hold of God's staff, starts off for Egypt. So Exodus 4, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. 
But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your first, your son, your firstborn. So now Moses sees the Lord appear a third time. This time it occurs as he's traveling. And in this appearance, the Lord reminds Moses of a different aspect of the plan. In the second appearance, the reminder was simply on the need to go. This one now is to the details of the plan. And specifically, make sure you perform all of those signs I gave you, Moses. Don't forget, I want them all done. All of those things I taught you. God gave Moses powers, wonders, miracles that he was to use for specific purposes in this mission. And just as God will equip us for the work that he calls us to do, he expects us to use what we're given. To do it according to the plan. In the same way that Moses would have been disobedient to refuse God's calling to go, he would have been equally disobedient if he had neglected to use the gifts he had been given for that mission. All of them, in other words. All of the things that were given to him. Moses was told to use all the miracles. So now if Moses were to appear before Pharaoh and for whatever reason choose to perform some of the signs and not all of the signs, then God's purpose in Moses' calling would not have been met, self-evidently. That means that God not only prescribes the object of our ministry, but he also prescribes the manner of our ministry. The error that I see most commonly in the church today is not the objective, though that exists as well. It's the manner of reaching the objectives. We all want people saved. We all want people to be discipled. We all want people to know and follow the Lord. But the manner of achieving that is prescribed by God. And chiefly, it's to the discipleship of the word. There are other things as well, other disciplines. But we don't have the latitude to invent our own methods. But we're called to labor in the same spirit that equipped us and called us. And so Moses is being asked to stick with the plan. Trust the plan, Moses. We'll see soon enough in chapter 5 how the initial response to the plan is not in keeping with Moses' expectations. God's setting him up here early with an understanding that he should stick with the plan. Now, by the same token, when we obey the call, follow the Spirit, use our gifts, do everything according to plan, are we then going to assume everything's going to work smoothly? God tells Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. In fact, I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let Israel leave. Can you imagine any statement more confusing for Moses than that one at this point? Moses was sent with a mission to free Israel, and God has given Moses the promise that this mission would succeed, because he's already said, I want you to come back to this mountain, you'll worship me here, and so on. And he's also given him special powers, by the way, to ensure all of that outcome. And now he tells him, that while you're there performing all these miracles, I, God, I'm going to be working behind the scenes to prevent it from working. When we serve the Lord, you've got to guard against running ahead of him in assuming too much about what defines success in ministry. Moses knew God intended to free the Israelites. God said as much. But now he informs him this plan is a little more complicated than that. We don't get there on a smooth trip. This is going to be the first of a whole period of frustration for Moses in which he will display God's power, but his results are delayed to suit God's purposes. And initially, he'll have nothing but grief because of what he's going to go do in keeping God's word. God, for his part, graciously reveals this part of the plan to Moses at this early stage, giving Moses a chance for a proper perspective about what's going to come from all this effort. How easily would Moses have become discouraged, would you think, if he hadn't understood this detail? In fact, he experiences disappointment despite having this insight. Becoming disappointed in the results that God gives us in ministry can lead to a mindset that I call the Elijah complex. 
In 1 Kings 19, there's a point in which Elijah the prophet fails to lead Israel out of idolatry through miraculous displays like calling fire down from heaven to devour the prophets of Baal. He thinks, well, this will do it. No, not only did Israel quickly return to their idolatry, but now the queen wants to kill him. So he, in a pity party, runs to the mountain of God and says, there's no one left but me. I'm the last one. You might as well kill me. Literally, that's what he asks God to do. And God answers him by saying, everything is going just the way I planned, Elijah. I still have 7,000 faithful men in Israel that have not bowed their knee to Baal, just as I wanted. And my purpose in your ministry is being met with different outcomes than you may have thought, but they're the right outcomes for my purpose in your ministry. And for Elijah's self-pity, he was promptly removed as prophet at that point, and Elisha took his place. So don't succumb to the Elijah complex, as I call it. Don't prejudge God's purposes in your call or evaluate your results against some personal objective, unless you're sure that that objective is the one God has put in your heart and is the one he expects you to achieve. Because in this case, God tells Moses in so many words, prepare for nine rounds of disappointment before the 10th round achieves the outcome. And we know that's what he's referring to because he says, you will reach a point of declaring to Pharaoh that because you did not let my child go, my firstborn, I have to take the life of your firstborn. We know that's the 10th plague. That 10th one, the one where the firstborn dies, folks, that's the one that became the memorial for the Passover. Without the 10th, you don't have a Passover. So if there had been a potential for success prior to the 10th, it would have taken God's plan completely off track. We may never know that we have nine failures before our 10th success. Let's look a little closer at verse 21. When most Christians come to this part of the story, particularly verse 21, some or many, I'm not sure, have difficulty with God's words there. And the difficulty, to be clear, is not in understanding what the text says. That's abundantly clear. The difficulty comes in our willingness to accept what the text says. In verse 21, God says, he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will resist Moses' call to set Israel free. Now, the hardening is not going to change the ultimate outcome. Israel's going to be set free in the end. But Pharaoh's heart being hardened is an important part of God's plan here in determining the way in which the events play out. Throughout the entire account of the story of Exodus, throughout this whole story, the Bible has a total of 20 mentions of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Ten times God does the hardening. Four times Pharaoh does the hardening. Six times we hear of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, but there's no actor identified for a total of 20. Now, some students and teachers are, let's say, uncomfortable with the prospect of God directing Pharaoh in this way. So they search for some kind of cause and effect relationship that they can hang on in order to explain it. They point, for example, to Pharaoh's choice to harden his own heart during the initial plagues, and they use that as justification for God then stepping in to further harden Pharaoh's heart during the later plagues. The whole point in that analysis is that God required some provocation by Pharaoh if God were to be able to do what he did justly. That unless there was some provocation, it would have been wrong for God to harden someone's heart to suggest that without such justification, God would have been wrong. That's where that mindset comes from. The mindset says, I need to find something in the text to justify how God could get away with this. That explanation parses the text 
in an unhelpful and inaccurate way, and it misrepresents God's sovereignty and his character. Clearly, in this verse, God declares from the start that he intends to prevent Pharaoh from agreeing too quickly. Therefore, we can't make anything significant out of the fact of who hardens first or who hardens most or whatever. Those are not significant details in the course of the text. They're not meant to be. Early in this confrontation, Pharaoh's heart will naturally resist the request, as any man in his position would have. No guy in that position is going to have some yahoo show up out of the desert and say, I want to take all your slaves and say, oh, sure, go ahead. That doesn't require God to harden. It's naturally already disposed to do that. But after the plagues begin to take their toll, plague after plague after plague, sooner or later, men reach their breaking point. And if this man, Pharaoh, had reached his breaking point at, say, plague five, plague six, plague seven, plague eight, God's plan would not have gone as scripted. And God's purposes would not have been met. So God intercedes to prevent Pharaoh from giving up too soon. The issue we're going to wrestle with here is the simple fact that God actively prevents Pharaoh from relenting until the moment God is ready for that to happen. And to make proper sense of God's actions, you have to notice a couple of things. First, the hardening is not for the purpose of preventing Pharaoh's salvation. We're told here that God's hardening is for the purpose of ensuring Pharaoh would not let Israel go too soon. The point of this hardening is to stop his behavior from going in the wrong direction. That's its only focus. More importantly, there is no need for God to harden Pharaoh's heart against the chance of believing and being saved. Like all men, he was born lost. By his own nature, he will remain forever lost unless God intervenes to grant mercy and faith. God doesn't harden a heart so that someone would become unbelieving and lost. Men are born lost and unreceptive to the gospel. God must intervene to change that, not the other way around. Paul says in Romans 3.11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. The notion that men can seek a God they do not know and find him is a man-made false teaching. Jesus himself said in John 6.65, for this reason, I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. That's God's glory in the process of salvation, that he opens an otherwise dead and unreceptive heart to a message that Paul says is foolishness to all of those who have not received the spirit and have been made to believe. So God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh's unbelieving heart has no issue whatsoever with respect to his salvation. God's saying, I'm going to direct this man's steps to the outcome I have ordained. The power of God's miracles are so great that even a man like Pharaoh might have been compelled to relent sooner than desired. So God holds him back. Paul says in Romans 9:17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate in you, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Paul's quote in Romans 9.17 is taken from Exodus 9.16, still several chapters away. In that chapter, 9.16 of Exodus, God is going to say this through Moses, that Pharaoh has been raised up. And what he means is born, lived, placed on the throne for one purpose. His life had one purpose in all eternity from God's point of view. It was to make him an object onto which God could project his power. And in that way, demonstrate to the whole world 
who God is. And that then the whole world would respond by proclaiming the name of God. And is that not been the history? Are we not doing that here now? Has Israel not done that throughout their history? Does anyone on earth not know the story of Charlton Heston? So God has mercy on whom he wishes and he hardens whom he wishes. In this particular scenario, you see both at hand. Israel was receiving the mercy of God to free them from slavery. And Pharaoh was seeing the hardening of God to project his power against him. Again, these are not issues of salvation in neither case. Are we talking about personal salvation for Israel or the lack thereof for Pharaoh? That's not even in view. The nation was to be set free from bondage and Egypt was appointed to endure ten plagues. The point of this is God's authority over the events of the world and over the lives of individual people that make up the world. God has all the right, all the power to decide who receives his mercy and who he hardens. And in that way, all human history transpires exactly according to God's eternal plan and will. It is the only way in which God can give prophecy. You cannot determine the end without also determining the means to the end. So God has said things will be, and he has then orchestrated all so that it can be. Romans 9.16, Paul says, So it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on the God who has mercy. God can and will use everything in his creation to bring himself glory. And here's the hard truth of that fact. Some men are called to receive God's mercy so that they may glorify him by their faith and obedience while other men are left in their sin so that God may receive glory for his perfect justice in displaying them as objects of his wrath. This was God's plan for Pharaoh, to be raised up as an object of God's wrath and power. Now Moses, Moses needed to understand this plan so that he would not become discouraged by Pharaoh's stubbornness. In fact, he needed to perceive that stubbornness as a part of God's plan so that the whole thing would play out according to plan. With this clarification, Moses is almost ready to enter Egypt and serve God with his calling. But before he can serve, God has to address a little issue of obedience in Moses' own life. And that comes here at the end of chapter 4. One of the more enigmatic passages of the Old Testament, certainly of Exodus, chapter 4, verse 24. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Enigmatic, wouldn't you agree? Because it's hard to figure out what's going on. It's a joke. That's what enigmatic means. If I have to explain them, folks, try to keep up. So in this passage, Moses is traveling to Egypt with Zipporah and her sons. They lodge somewhere along the trail, and the Lord appears before both of them. And the text says he seeks to put him to death. Now, in response, Moses' wife performs a circumcision on the second son. Then the Lord relents. The passage is difficult to interpret because of a little feature of Hebrew grammar. And that is that Hebrew often leaves out pronouns. They're often left to be implied by the context. So under these circumstances, when you find that happening in, in Hebrew, the actor of some context and the object of the action can often be unstated and assumed or have to be assumed. And of course, the assumptions you make in assigning pronouns to these implied actors and objects can change the meaning dramatically depending on who you assume them to be. 
Well, case in point, in verse 24, my Bible says the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, the interpreters here did what I think is a wise thing. They didn't try to figure it out. They don't know who it is. So they don't try to put a name there. They just use a pronoun and leave it to us to figure out, leave it to the spirit to teach us. The Hebrew literally reads this way. The Lord encountered and sought to take life. So now where do we go with this? Who is the Lord meeting? Whose life is he seeking to take? Well, many interpreters have assumed that the he was Moses. Moses is traveling with his wife, Zipporah, his two sons, and it appears likely that the second son has not been circumcised. So the interpreters assume that the Lord is angry at Moses for not circumcising that second boy as required. Under the covenant that God gave Abraham in Genesis 17, all Jews were bound to circumcise their sons on the eighth day. Genesis 17:10 says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So if someone is not circumcised, they're to be cut off from the people. In Hebrew, the meaning of cut off is literally destroyed or killed. But notice in Genesis 17, who is commanded to die for failing to be circumcised? The one who's not circumcised. That is, the child is to be put to death. Circumcision was an outward sign in the body of Jewish males, reminding the nation of God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham's seed he would make a nation. If a parent refuses to circumcise their son, then they are disobeying God and they are excluding that son from inclusion in the promise to be part of that nation. And so, if there is a Jewish male in that community who lacks the sign of the covenant, they can't enjoy the privileges of the covenant, the membership of the covenant. God, having created this nation by a promise, this is a covenant that defines being in Israel, period. So, God has prescribed that if you don't circumcise your child, the child is killed, cut off. And in this case, God gave Moses a very interesting mission. He said to Moses in two verses earlier, you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that the penalty for your failure to obey my commandments is that I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And now here's Moses walking to do that mission to deliver that message with his own son now not in obedience to God's word. It would make sense in the context, not only from Genesis 17, but also from Exodus 4, that God is threatening to take the life of the son in keeping with the message he's given Moses to deliver to the Pharaoh, which is a failure to obey God's commandments leads to this penalty in this case. Therefore, the him here who is in danger of dying is not Moses. It's Moses' child. And Zipporah understands that situation, so she promptly circumcises her son on the spot to save his life. And then she throws, or in literally in Hebrew it says touches, but the context makes clear it's not a gentle little thing. She throws the skin at his feet. Well, whose feet do you think that is? Again, we're, we're left guessing a little bit about what's going on here in the family dynamic, but I think you can figure it out, right? Moses' wife is not Jewish. She's Midianite. She's not familiar with this covenant, perhaps. She probably knew very little about the practice of circumcision. Now, circumcision wasn't unknown in the ancient world, so she probably knew maybe of it. But before her first son came along, it's probably a good chance she had never seen it, never experienced it. So with the first son, Moses says, we have a requirement in our Jewish families. This is what we do to our sons. After she sees it, she thinks, that ain't happening again. So I'm not having that happen, right? So then Gershom is circumcised, but Eleazar, who's the name of the second son, Eleazar shows up, 
And she says, you aren't touching him. You can't really blame Zipporah so much. She didn't have the history. She was doing perhaps what moms would do under those circumstances. And that would explain her particular response here to the circumcision of the moment. She circumcises the child out of force, out of obligation because of what God is threatening. Then she's in disgust over the whole thing, throws the foreskin at the father and blames him, calling him a bridegroom of blood. What she meant was this marriage to Moses requires the spilling of blood every time their marriage results in the bringing forth of new life. Do you see a picture of Christ in that portrayal? Once again, Moses represents Jesus, who is our bridegroom, and we are his bride by faith. And that faith produces new spiritual life in each of us. But that new life came only by the blood of Christ on the cross. He is a bridegroom of blood to us. So she circumcises him in disgust. Now, more significantly, more troubling was Moses' failure to do this the first time, to let things get to this point, to contend with her over what I assume was her objections to circumcision. Here's a man appointed to lead the nation of God's people, and yet he wasn't doing even the most basic of spiritual leading in his own home, according to the rules he had in the covenant given to Abraham. Only after God threatens to kill his child does Zipporah take the appropriate action. Moses must have learned his lesson here, though, because after her display of disgust and disrespect, Moses sends Zipporah and the boys packing. They go back to Jethro at this point. They don't go the rest of the way into Egypt. You'll find out in Exodus 18 that Jethro eventually brings the family to meet Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses must have looked at the situation and decided it was better to go alone at this point. Whatever else transpired, we don't know. The lesson is God demands that those who might lead his people lead first in their own lives and in their families' lives. Paul says it easiest and best. 1 Timothy 3, 4. He must be, speaking of a leader in the church, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? What a powerful statement. You want to know whether somebody is capable of taking on the responsibility of managing in God's home at some level? Look at their family. So Moses deferred to his wife's ignorance concerning a major issue in the family's spiritual life. And his abdication of leadership almost led to the death of his own son. And don't assume his example is an extreme one, because I think a man's failure to lead his family spiritually may often lead to the potential for his children's life to be in danger. Through their own disobedience, the circumstances of the life they choose, at the very least, it's going to lead to discord and dissension and disobedience within the family. It's an inevitable result of a failure within the family for strong headship to be in place. By the way, mothers play an equally important role in all of this, in not only their own respect for and obedience to that headship in the home, but they're also a leader and an instructor to the children and a model. They have to model that same obedience, that same godliness, while handing out correction in the right way. All of that you know, I'm sure. But at the end of the day, godly parents please the Lord and curry blessing for the entire family, and God demands that before someone can step into a role of leadership. And we want that, don't we? We don't want to be led by people who have one life in front of us and a different life at home. Because eventually that home life comes to the surface. So God brought Moses and his family to this point because he knew that what Moses had heard and what Moses was doing was not enough. Nor was it enough that Moses was willing to rely on God, nor was it enough that Moses was ready to use all the gifts God gave him. That's all important, but it's not enough. Moses had to conform his own life to God's commandments first. 
before he could be a spokesman to demonstrate that need of obedience to others. Consider the irony. Had Moses gone to Pharaoh and to the Jewish people, demanding that they obey God, all the while he had not obeyed the most basic of commandments to the Jewish people. That's an irony God couldn't stand for. So what is your readiness to serve God in ministry? We all have a calling to serve God in various places and in various ways, but our personal ministry as a disciple is our first and most powerful testimony, and it goes everywhere we go. It goes to the office, school, to the ball field, certainly to the mission field. I think there are cases in my experience of men who find their opportunities in ministry restrained because of some continuing disobedience in their lives. And that's not a proof. That doesn't mean it's always that God holds us back, but I think there is a principle there that God will and may hold us back if we're not suited for the plan. So let's go to verse 27 into chapter 5. Verse 27, Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel and and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. So we remember God assured Moses, you're going to have help. You're going to have Aaron. And now Moses, in his own writing here, tells us how God brought Aaron to him. While he was still in the Mount Sinai area near the very beginning of his trip, they meet up at that point. They tell each other the whole story. There's hugs and kisses. And at this point forward, Aaron is the spokesperson. So at this point forward, unless the text specifies otherwise, everything that's said is said by Aaron. Because the whole point was, Aaron is there to do the job of talking for you. You tell Aaron, he tells Pharaoh. There will be a few times when you hear Moses speak, but by and large, it's Aaron doing all the talking. And in this case, they meet with Israel when they arrive, and they find the elders of Israel. Now, while they are in captivity, or maybe even because of their captivity, Israel maintained not only their identity as a separate people, but they also maintained their leadership structure. So they had elders over the tribes and the elders had authority over the people and the people follow their leaders judgments. So they go to these leaders and they work through them to get to the people. They make the case for why they're there. They show the signs. The leaders are convinced. So the people follow very simple pattern and they follow specifically by bowing and worshiping God. Here is a beautiful example of how to measure success in service to God. Moses went as God directed. He went to the people God directed. He went in the company of those God delivered to him, Aaron. He took advantage of the gifts God provided to him, and he relied on the support, the gifts of Aaron that God provided. And by these things, Moses prompted God's people to worship and praise God's name. So the truest measure of our service to God is whether by that service we inspire others to worship and serve God. So Moses has shown up and done the first part. Now the hard part begins. So we move out of section one into section two. This is the point at which God begins to display his power to Pharaoh. As he said, he raised up Pharaoh for. So here's how that takes place. It goes from chapter five to chapter 11. Verse one. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, 
The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many and you would have them cease from their labors. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore, they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavy on the men and let them work at it so that they will pay no attention to false words. So in chapter five, Moses has his initial encounter. This is the Pharaoh Amenhotep II, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Moses speaking through Aaron. He demands that Pharaoh let Israel go, of course, go out into the wilderness and celebrate a feast. This was the very first thing God told Moses to say to Pharaoh. And as we noted previously, the request here implies let my people go, because asking for a three day journey into the wilderness meant walking the distance between where they were and the border. Literally walking to the border of Egypt, the border on Canaan was where they would end up if they walked three days. And that was clearly enough to let Pharaoh understand these slaves will be gone. And if you want further evidence of that thinking, I want you to imagine if the slaves of a southern plantation in the U.S. had asked their master to allow them to travel to the Mason-Dixon line in order to worship the Lord. The slave master would have understood he would never see those slaves again. And similarly, Pharaoh knew that after such a journey, that would be the end of a plentiful pool of cheap labor. And he wasn't about to see that happen. Therefore, the Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron was entirely expected, entirely logical. He says, first of all, I've never heard of your God called Hayah, Lord. And therefore, I have no need to obey such a God. And that was absolutely true. I mean, there's no doubt that he had never heard of Hayah. Egypt had over 80 gods and none of them were called Hayah. So this would have been a new name for him. And his initial refusal is followed up by Aaron then asking for, again, the chance for them to go. But he adds now, we need to go. We need to go obey the Lord or there would be judgment for us if we don't. Moses would have been acutely aware at this point of the relationship between disobedience and God's wrath. So, you know, he knew better than anyone to say, look, if we don't do this, I'm a little worried about what comes next. And then the second reason this is interesting is it serves as a prophetic warning to Pharaoh himself, because Pharaoh is going to experience these kinds of judgments for failure to comply. So not only now does Pharaoh get put on notice concerning God's will, he also gets put on notice concerning the kind of judgment that will come if he does not comply. But, of course, he still denies it. What God did not tell Moses about the plan was that the Pharaoh is going to react pretty harshly to your request. In fact, Pharaoh brings this retribution against the Hebrews as a result of Moses's request. Pharaoh commands that the Hebrews no longer have straw to provide for making brick. Now, straw was the binding agent in the clay bricks that they made. So if you didn't use straw in the brick, it would be so brittle, it would just crumble or, or be useless in, in construction. Previously, the Hebrews had been supplied straw by the Egyptians to make their work faster. And now they're going to be told you have to go throughout the whole land looking for your own straw and that's going to take a lot of time. A lot of labor is going to have to leave the brick making process to go search for the straw. And nevertheless, your daily quota for bricks doesn't go down. 
So Pharaoh's command makes life immeasurably harder for the Jews. In fact, it makes it impossible for them to do what he's asking them to do. His demand here is not just spite. There's real political wisdom in what Pharaoh's doing. He, he says it at the very end in verse 9, that this would be so that they would no longer listen to false words. He's linked the Jews' harsh circumstances now with Moses' actions and words. And he wants that link so that when the Jews feel the pressure of the harsh treatment, they will blame Moses for their circumstances and in blaming Moses, diminish Moses' authority and respect within the Jewish people. It's a smart ploy on his part. That's often a technique you'll see despots apply to hold on to power. They'll set their opponents against one another in some way so that they diminish their power in opposition. This is the challenge now for Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 10. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, make bricks. Behold, your servants are being beaten, but it's the fault of your own people. But he said, you are lazy, very lazy. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So now go and work, for you will not be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. The foreman of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. And when they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Elijah complex. Just to set the full context here, Egyptian rank structure had three levels of authority over the Hebrew slaves. You had Egyptian officers under which then you had Egyptian taskmasters. But under them, you had a third level called, in my text, is called foreman. And a foreman was a Jew. These were literally fellow slaves appointed to oversee the labor of their brethren. And the taskmasters are given the job to go out and deliver the news. And the foremen now have the job of making it happen, of actually carrying out these orders. And the news, of course, is bad. No more straw. And the new work makes it impossible to meet the quota. So the result is the Egyptian taskmasters beat the Jewish foreman. So they don't beat all of Israel. They beat just these leaders for not keeping their quota. Now, to the foreman, those beaten Jewish foremen, this makes no sense. There's no sense to this plan, at least as far as they understand it, because it seems to work against Pharaoh's own best interests. They want to understand why would Pharaoh make our job harder and not easier when the whole point is for us to build things for him. So when they see Pharaoh, he gives them the reason. He says it's because you wanted to go sacrifice. In other words, they find out that it's because of Moses, which was the plan from Pharaoh's point of view. That's what he wanted. So he puts the blame at Moses' feet. So now the foreman 
fall for this trick, basically. They come back to Moses and Aaron at that point and they say, God will judge you for bringing this outcome upon the people. They blame him. Now, obviously, this meeting disturbs Moses tremendously. And so he goes before the Lord and he has this lament over the situation and over his calling. Moses was obviously expecting to bring a blessing and a relief to these people who could blame him, right? He's there to set them free. You would expect if you were him that your arrival would be a good thing for the people. Instead, what he sees is that his work in ministry is bringing greater misery to these people, leading them now to resent him for it. Furthermore, and here's where that Elijah complex kicks in, he begins to prejudge the outcome of the work. In verse 23, Moses accuses God of not delivering the people as he promised. Never mind the fact that he said, I'm going to harden his heart. Isn't it remarkable how quickly he loses his composure, despite all of what he's heard, all of what he's learned? He assumed his arrival would mean relief. And what he probably expected was he'd be met by cheering crowds, hoisting on his shoulders, naming kids after him, walking down the street. What he didn't anticipate was they curse his name two days after he's arrived. God calls us to serve in different ways, to service people in different ways. But folks, our service isn't usually intended by God to make people's lives easier. It's not meant to be a source for greater personal happiness in people's lives or comfort, at least not in this world. It really isn't. That's rarely the intent of God's ministry. We may hope to bring a blessing to people through our service, but we often equate the word blessing with physical or emotional comfort or some material benefit. And as much as those things might be valued, the Bible equates blessing with suffering, hardship, persecution, testing, trials, and self-sacrifice. So if we serve in God's will according to God's plan, we should anticipate that if not always, at least often, our outcome in ministry will be to the effect that people have the opportunity to suffer for Christ, to have hardship for Christ, to be persecuted for the name of Christ, to be tested and proven through trials and to show self-sacrifice as Jesus picked up his cross, we pick up ours. I mean, that should be the outcome. That's actually the measure of a healthy ministry because it's achieving the ends the Bible defines as success. If, on the other hand, our ministry only serves felt needs, emotional, physical desires of one kind or another, ease of life, then it's not ministry anymore. It's a popularity contest. And Moses wanted to win a popularity contest. He wasn't prepared for the hardships that ministry brought in this case, the things God had ordained. And leaders in ministry bear the worst of this burden. They really do. Because they have to serve not only as examples of that truth in their own life, but they also have the unenviable task of calling God's people to suffer likewise, which is not a popular message, not designed to win over a large audience. So Moses and Aaron here now are in a tough situation. They cannot make excuses for their call. They cannot back down from their ministry. They cannot alter their message. They cannot succumb to the pressure these people are bringing, which would have been a very tough thing to avoid. They can't soften the message. But a lot of people do. A lot of leaders do, in my experience. Rather than declaring the reality of sin, the need to crucify the flesh, instead they tickle ears and they teach what pleases the flesh. We're supposed to demand that people follow us in walking according to the faith we've been given, not make excuses for sin, not come up with some exceptions for every rule in Scripture so that people can feel good about who they are instead of feeling good about who Christ is and why they need to be more like him. And when you make a spiritual walk of someone easier beyond what God permits, you're doing them a big disservice because what you're doing is making it easier for them to remain who they are rather than to seek for something better 
in Christ. And I think ultimately as leaders, we risk bringing judgment upon ourselves if we were to ever go that route. I speak in the term leader in the broadest sense, not in some limited organizational sense. So I think we all can aspire to that in some form. So with that, we'll close. We'll come back next week in chapters 6 and beyond. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for the lessons of leadership and of sustained service through difficult times, of the need, Father, to measure our success in ministry according to your will and not according to what the world or men would say is success. To understand your plan, Father, may have an arc that differs from our expectations, not to lose heart with that, but to have a confidence that you always remain in control, to have a full understanding of the power that comes with the sovereignty you wield in this world, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to learn and know these things so that we may be a sober and clear-headed follower in these last days. I thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is to proclaim your word and the privilege that it is to hear it. Let others join us in that endeavor, and we pray to be back here next week according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.